Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this episode contains some description of physical and sexual violence. Please use discretion. It was the summer of 1992 in London. Several times throughout those few months, delegations of Bosnian Serb, Muslim and Croat representatives flew to the UK to negotiate. They were trying to reach some sort of peace agreement. It had been just a few months since the start of the war in Bosnia, three years before it would culminate with the genocide in Srebrenica, the story which we told in series one of Untold Killing. And representing the Bosnian Serb side at the London negotiations in 92 was the president of the newly declared Bosnian Serb substate Republic of Srpska himself, Radovan Karadzic, the man at the top of the Bosnian Serb pyramid, who was later convicted of committing genocide in Srebrenica. Then later that summer, at the end of July, two different journalists, Roy Gutman of New York Newsday and Maggie O'Kane of The Guardian, reported disturbing stories coming out of Bosnia. These reports described Bosnian Serb-run camps in the northwest of Bosnia. But not many confirmed details were known at the time, only that local non-Serbs, mainly Bosnian Muslims and Croats, were being forced out of their homes, rounded up based on their ethnicity, deported, killed on the spot or imprisoned in these camps. Horrific accounts of what was going on inside were shared by the few who were released. Stories of torture and death. The newspaper reports caused a stir. After just 50 years since the Holocaust, did Europe have concentration camps on its hands again? But when Radovan Karadzic was in London on the 29th of July for another round of peace talks, he denied their existence very publicly to a British news organisation, Independent Television News. I invite any foreign correspondent to come to Serbian part of Bosnia and Herzegovina and to point out what city or, or town they would like to search for concentration campuses for civilians. I've no idea. To this day, I have no idea why he said that. Paul, my editor, said, well, look, actually, let's follow up on the camps. Let's take him up on his offer. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic. If you listen to series one of Untold Killing, you'll remember that we told the story of the Srebrenica genocide. Exploring that story was very personal for me because my family had been affected by the same war, although in a much less extreme way. It forced us to flee Sarajevo, where I'm from, and move to London when I was just a small child. And making the podcast, talking to all the Srebrenica survivors and kind of making sense of what happened to them helped me connect with my Bosnian identity in a new and kind of deeper way. But it also made me want to explore other stories from the Bosnian War, and many of these, I realised, also deserve to be told. So me and my producer, Jake Tajovic, we've decided to focus on this one specific story in Series 2 of Untold Killing, which actually happened at the start of the war, not at the end of it, like Srebrenica. The reason we thought it was important to tell it is because already in August 1992, when the story played out, it showed the world the true, sinister nature of the war, which was then allowed to go on for another three years anyway. 
And it also feels really relevant to what's happening around the world today, with societies everywhere becoming more and more polarised. This story shows how easily that division can take people to a very scary place. So I think the best place to start is with Ed Vuliami. He's a war reporter who doesn't like calling himself that. He prefers the term anti-war reporter. I don't go looking for war. War finds me. Ed has a long career of covering a lot of different conflicts. I was a reporter for The Guardian and Observer for 32 years. Can you believe it? And three of those years were spent largely in Bosnia-Herzegovina in the early 1990s. Ed says that he first got involved with Yugoslavia and Bosnia completely unintentionally. After covering the democratic revolutions across Europe following the fall of the Berlin Wall in the late 80s, he imagined a calmer life for himself. The Guardian assigned him to be based in Rome. Which was a dream come true. Living La Dolce Vita was exactly what he'd been hoping for for 20 years. I'm a great Italophile, I speak Italian, and I intended to basically cover organised crime when I was feeling serious, and Diego Maradona when I was feeling, well, serious in a different way. But everything went a bit wrong, because I got a call from the foreign desk on a beautiful morning in Rome in June 1991, the foreign editor saying, something strange happening in uh, Slovenia. The Yugoslav army appears to be mobilising against a bunch of people with hunting rifles and uh, talking about separating from Yugoslavia. Could you rent a car in Trieste, since you're next door, and go and see what happened? Yugoslavia was a communist federation of six different republics. And in the early 90s, one by one, the different states started declaring independence after holding referendums, starting with Slovenia and Croatia in 1991. The Yugoslav government, now dominated by Serbia, were not happy about it. They wanted to keep control of the federation. And that's why the first two Yugoslav wars started in Slovenia and Croatia. After the call from his editor in June, and just after the independence declarations, Ed went on to cover both the Slovenian and Croatian wars. And then when the Bosnian war began with the siege of Sarajevo in April 1992, after Bosnia's own independence referendum, Ed was on rotation to cover it along with some other Guardian journalists. The media paid a lot of attention to the war. Sarajevo was a well-known European city, only a couple of hours away from London by plane. We had the Winter Olympics there just eight years before, in 1984. The war essentially came down to the self-declared Bosnian Serb substate, Republika Srpska, using the resources of the Yugoslav army to attack the newly independent and internationally recognised Bosnia, with the aim to create a Bosnian Serb-only territory for themselves inside of Bosnia. So then, a few months into the war, on the night of the 29th of July 1992, ITN broadcast their Karadzic interview, the one in which he denied the camp reports and invited journalists to verify them. After seeing it, Ed and his editor Paul went to the pub together, just outside of the Guardian offices in central London. And there, Paul decided that they would follow up on Karadzic's offer. They were going to try and gain access to these alleged torture and death camps on the invitation and under the supervision of the very people who were meant to be running them, without any protection other than their bulletproof vests. 
So the next morning, Penny Marshall and Ian Williams of ITN, logically, because that's where the challenge had been issued, and I, because it was our story that had prompted the matter, set off for Belgrade. And we bobbed up in Belgrade and we said to various uh, people we came to know rather well, well, here we are. Thank you, Dr. Karasic, for your kind offer. We're ready when you are to go to Omarska. Omarska was probably the most notorious camp named in the reports. It was the one they wanted to get to, but it immediately became clear that it wouldn't be a straightforward visit. And we started being screwed around. They played for time to postpone our visit to Omarska. We were being batted around like ping-pong balls between various briefings and meetings and bluster and huff and puff about how there are Muslim camps too and all this sort of thing. In Belgrade, they were in the hands of a man called Nikola Kolyevich. He'd been a professor of English literature in Sarajevo and claimed to be an expert on Shakespeare, whom he kept quoting wrongly. He was Karadzic's deputy, Republika Srpska's number two. And he finally, after five days of this messing around, arranged for a military helicopter to take us from Belgrade to Pale. And Pale was the Bosnian-Serb capital outside Sarajevo for their enterprise, for the carving out of their ethnically pure republic and where Karadzic was based. And the helicopter landed in a football field on the outskirts of Pale and then just disappeared. So there we were. ITN, two presenters, two crews, me with my notebook and pen, wandering to the edge of the football field and into the town, you know, asking, excuse me, where is Dr. Karajic's office? You know, it's faintly ridiculous. But a little bit later, they finally managed to find him. And he received us for a long lunch and a long briefing, which got more and more kind of wild and wacky, most of it about the great cause of the Serbian nation since the Middle Ages, etc., etc. You know, no story begins after the 15th century in these conversations. And he was sort of, yes, you will see Omarska. And he said, evidentially, very important, he said, you will see it on my authority. But again, there were delays. They didn't go straight to Omarska. The next day, they rode for hours in a military truck to Banja Luka, the self-declared Republika Srpska's biggest city. It's more than 200 kilometres north of Pale. They rode through a corridor across the war-ravaged Bosnian country, with an endless string of bombed-out mosques and incinerated towns passing by. They had an uneasy dinner in Banja Luka, surrounded by Bosnian-Serb officials, and then spent the night there. The next morning, the 5th of August 1995, Ed Vuliami, Penny Marshall, Ian Williams, their crew and their driver and translator Misha, who joined them back in Belgrade, were going to Omarska. Yes, up, disgusting breakfast, uh, and a man called Milutinovic, a captain in the Bosnian-Serb army, meets us and says, I will take you. Again, another extraordinary drive through a place that becomes epicentral to the story of Omarska and the other camps called Kozarats. But we went through Kozarats and it was utterly bizarre. I mean, most of the town was incinerated, burned, bombed, just charred masonry. But every now and then there'd be a family hanging up the washing, tending the animals in the garden, as though nothing had happened. It was quite extraordinary, the Serbs who had remained. Just Bosnian Serb families were left in the decimated town. And this was the pattern in so many places across Bosnia, where Republika Srpska gained control. And then there was another detour. They weren't going to Omarska just yet. They were going to Priedor first, the administrative capital of the area. And actually the place from which the camps were managed, we now know. And we go into the police station for a briefing, yet another briefing. I mean, they like their briefings, these people. But this one was exceptional. I mean, this one was as surreal as it was terrifying. Present at the table, a man called Durljaca, 
chief of police for Priador, who was clearly uncomfortable with us being anywhere near this. The mayor of Priador, the, the civilian mayor, a man called Stakic, a doctor who was fairly taciturn, and the deputy mayor, a man called Kovacevic, Milan Kovacevic, who was a, was a great bear of a man with a US Marines t-shirt on. And he was clearly the one who'd had a couple of drinks and was on and on and on about jihad and showing us pictures of, oh, look, we found a copy of the Quran in one of the houses. But it was quite clear that, that they had authority over the camp. And we were a good couple of hours in there being sort of talked to about how uh, all this was fabrication, but it had to be done, but it was fabrication and it had to be done. I mean, one of the themes of all this is they can't make up their minds whether what they did was, was necessary and justifiable or didn't happen and was a media fabrication. Sort of, are they crazy or pretending to be crazy? And I still can't answer that question. Once the briefing finally wrapped up, they set off for Omarskaya at last, this time for real. All these delays were frustrating at the time, but Ed now understands what they were trying to do. So they were basically playing for time, I now know, while they emptied out Omarska. According to Ed, the Bosnian Serbs still had one last stalling tactic up their sleeve before the journalists' arrival to the camp. There is a battle on the way, and gunfire is coming over our vehicle. They all stop, they jump out, there's a blue APC that returns far into the woods and they take positions in the ditches and we are told the Mujahideen gunmen are in the woods, it's not safe and so on. By then all of us had seen warfare and we knew that this was just a fake, this was ridiculous. I mean, how come the Mujahideen are firing a good 20 feet above our heads and how come they're firing at the tops of the trees when they return the fire? I mean, in retrospect, it was quite sort of reckless of us because I think they were trying to sort of stop us from going any further by staging a mock battle with their own people pretending that it was an attack by the other side. And we actually were quite sort of gung-ho about it. So this is ridiculous. I'm sorry, this is clearly a prank. You know, can we, can we get on with the day's work, please? And they were slightly kind of, I think they were like taken aback. Ed wasn't phased by the Serbs' performance. And next, he says, everyone got back in their vehicles and started driving again. They were only minutes away from reaching the camp now. We pass the turn-off to, to Omarska, start going round back lanes, back roads. Oh, why are we doing that? Why didn't we follow the sign to Omarska? Something funny's going on here. And then we reached the gates, the back gates, not the front gates, the back gates of the Omarska or mining complex where we had reached our destination. It turned out that Omarska used to be a mining facility, hastily turned into a place so violent that rumours of it had spread across the world. Ed's description of it makes me think of those old school dystopian sci-fi films which were trying to create the kind of atmosphere of desolation that Omarska apparently carried off so effortlessly. Red brick, lots of sort of rather archaic industrial structures, uh, sort of spidery ironwork runways on which the ore could be transported. Old school, East European, rusty, heavy industry. And through the gates we went and nothing could prepare one for what we saw. There was a hangar across a yard and the doorway to the hangar was opened and out of it came a group of 30 men in various sort of states of um, disintegration. Some had shaven heads and were skeletal, others were beefy enough. At this point, the ITN cameramen started recording. There is footage of the whole visit. You can see these 30 men being made to jog, kind of awkwardly, in a single file line, from the hangar doors towards the canteen. There was a sort of machine gunner on a kind of watch post at the top of a staircase, following them with his gun. 
And in they went for lunchtime at Camp Umarska. Unbelievable. The journalists followed them into the canteen, and there they saw the prisoners queue up for a piece of bread and a small portion of a watery bean stew. The men then sat down to eat. Some of them, as I say, were skeletal and had these sort of spindly hands and lantern jaws and eyes that sort of seemed bigger than they were in the sockets. Others were obviously recent arrivals and less emaciated. But you could tell from the way they were devouring their soup that this was the first meal they'd seen for quite a long time and was indeed a sort of a show for us. Oh, look, it's men having lunch in your camp, kind of thing. We saw terribly old men there, men paper thin, too terrified to speak to us, terribly underfed, and only about 80 of a total of 1,400 prisoners. We were not allowed to see the others. We were not allowed to see where they lived, what they were doing. In fact, we were escorted in the end away from the camp by men with guns and left with very, very grave doubts. Apparently, the men were told they were allowed to speak to the journalists. But only three years later did Ed fully understand what an impossible situation it was for them that day. He was somewhere else in Bosnia at that point, still reporting on the war, and he got talking to a man who was at the camp in 92, who said to Ed, Do you remember me? I said, no, no, sorry. He said, do you remember the man who had a wound on his face and you asked him how he got it? And I said, I fell over. I said, yes, I do. Of course I remember that man. And of course it was him. He said, well, I couldn't tell you because the guard was behind you looking straight at me while I was talking to you. It was my producer, Jake Atayevich, who interviewed Ed about the whole story. Did you see that fear in them in the moment? Oh, yes. And more than fear, terror. I mean, there's nothing like the eyes of a prisoner that can't speak. You know, they speak volumes. There's a kind of negative electricity in the eyes and the expression of someone who has so much to tell you but just cannot out of fear. We sat down. One man was eating his lunch. He was very skeletal. And we um, asked him what was happening. We put him in a quite a difficult position with hindsight. And he came up with this amazing line. It was the only quote from the camp of the day from Omaska. He said, I do not want to tell you any lies, but I cannot tell the truth. I'll never forget that. Hearing Ed's story, I started wondering, as a journalist in a place like Omarska, how do you navigate the situation? And how do you feel in that moment? You don't have time to process the emotions. I mean, this is clearly something completely out of the ordinary. This is a nightmare. Whatever's going on here is everything we dreaded it would be. But how are we going to prove this? I mean, this is a bunch of men in appalling conditions, in a state of terror, having lunch. That's, that's all we've seen. We were then whisked upstairs, down a corridor, past closed doors into an office, and we were given yet another bloody briefing from uh, Dolyacha, the police chief, a man called Mirkic, the camp commander, who said nothing. And on and on it went, translated now by a woman called Mrs. Balaban, who talked like a Kalashnikov firing. You know, no, it is this. No, it is not a camp. It is a centre. Ed remembers Mrs. Balaban, the Bosnian-Serb translator, insisting this was a camp for suspected Mujahedin fighters, Muslim extremists, armed men, for investigating and processing them. It was bunkum, revolting bunkum. As soon as this briefing was over, they were told it was time to go. But all they'd gotten to see was the canteen, just one tiny part of the camp. So they started protesting. This isn't what we were promised by Dr. Karadzic. We were promised to see the conditions these men live in. They came outside again now, back into the scorching Bosnian summer sun, still demanding access to the living areas. 
This tense standoff was also caught on camera. That's Misha speaking, the journalist translator. He's standing outside with a red brick wall behind him. On the left, he's flanked by two Bosnian Serb soldiers in a green uniform, and on the right by Ian Williams and Penny Marshall, both wearing their bulletproof vests. Yes. yes. Why can't we? That's Penny. She's clearly frustrated. She said the Bosnian Serbs defended themselves by saying that anyone could see the living quarters, even the Red Cross. So why not them? We see nothing. We see one dining hall, So we have a promise. That's Ian Williams talking now, the Channel 4 reporter. He goes on to say that if they're not allowed to see more of Omarska, they won't be able to say that it's not a concentration camp. They'll have to report that they were stopped from seeing it. About a minute later, a small, plump, middle-aged lady in a bright red blouse steps into frame. Mrs. Balaban, the woman with the Kalashnikov voice. And Mrs. Balaban said something evidentially of great importance with regard to Karadzic, because we said, look, Dr. Karadzic said we could see the camp. We're here at his invitation. Oh, well. Why are you not fulfilling Dr. Karadzic's promise to us? And she said, oh, he told us something different, that you could see this and this, but not that. He promised us something else and said, you can do this and this and that and not that. So he I'm told, sorry. So he, told you, so he told you not to give us access to the majority of this camp. Important. It shows that Karadzic knows the difference between this and this and that. So he, you know, he can't plead ignorance of what's going on in this place. It's coming from the top. And then as we proceeded towards the hangar, the safety caches came off the guns. The camp commander, Mayakic, who had said very little at the ridiculous briefing, stepped in our way. And it was quite clear that if we push this, it could get very dangerous and potentially fatal. So we uh, were bundled off. They said, no, 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 it's time to go. We're going to another center. We were basically bundled out of Omarska. So we'd seen very little. The group is escorted out of the complex. On the way out, the cameraman catches one last glimpse of the big red hangar where the prisoners lived. He zooms in on a guard standing at the hangar door, holding a rifle, staring back. Then the crew gets walked to their van and they're driven to their next stop, Ternopoli. That's coming up after the break. Ternopoli was very different. It was literally a concentration camp. It was a camp to which people were corralled, concentrated, prior to enforced deportation. They thought it was okay for us to visit this place. I mean, because relative to Omarska, I mean, Omarska was so bad that they were sort of wanted to get us out of Omarska to this other place. Ternopoli is only about 15 kilometers away from Omarska. It wasn't a long drive. As we approached Ternopoli, we passed the extraordinary sight of a group of men standing behind a barbed wire fence, again in various states of decay. So instead of going to the gates of the camp as directed, it was, whoa, whoa, Misha, stop. <laughs> Out of the van we got very, very quickly over to the barbed wire fence. Ed says he doesn't think they were ever meant to meet those men at the fence, let alone interview them. I remember the cameraman getting his equipment out pretty damn quick, pressing on. Again, there's footage of these moments. You can see the men, 
a crowd of them, they're all facing the same direction towards the British journalists. Between them and the camera stretches a barbed wire fence. I can't quite tell what their faces are saying. They seem baffled by the sight of the crew, destroyed and resigned. And I'm not sure that I can see any hope in them, despite seeing these Western journalists. And as Ed said, most of them look starved in their bodies, but also in their eyes. Can you tell me anything about the conditions in which you are being kept here, or is it difficult? I'm not sure that I'm allowed about that. You know, I, can you understand me? Are people here being beaten? Here? No. Here, no. Uh, here. I, I, I rather wouldn't talk about that. I'm not sure. The man shrugs. He won't say anymore. This becomes a familiar refrain in all these conversations. We heard, we heard stories of people being beaten and people disappearing. Was that, did that happen? Well, I can't say much about that. I can't say much about that. The man stays silent for a few seconds and then says nothing more. None of them do. They just look at the journalists, as if trying to fill the silence using only their eyes, sending a wordless message. And there is another common theme in all of the conversations with the men behind the barbed wire. I just came today here. Where were you before? In another camp. All of them had arrived to Ternopolia that morning from a different camp. One, Ed says, they'd never even heard of until that moment. Where did you come from? From Frida, And as Ed was looking at all these men, he says one in particular stood out to him. Who was just a ribcage on legs. His name was Fikret Alic. He also mentioned that he'd come from Keraterm that morning. And this man, Alic, talked about a massacre of 150 men in one day at that camp. So, no, this is starting to accumulate. And this is all one day. Fikret's image was captured on camera as they were talking. Chances are, if you've ever seen any images to do with the camps, it will be Fikret's, behind the barbed wire fence. Just a few days later, it ended up on the cover of Time magazine and on TVs all around the world. He became almost a sort of icon of the early years of the war. And Ed says that while being at the barbed wire fence, he for the first time noticed another disturbing aspect to the camps. The closeness between the perpetrators and their victims, which later became a hallmark of this war. There was a boy who knew the Serbian guard on the outside of the barbed wire fence because they played football together. So one got immediately a sense of this sort of macabre intimacy that characterised the genocide in Bosnia. They knew each other. They knew each other. After they spoke to as many of the men behind the fence as they could manage, they were allowed to walk around Ternopolje. This camp was completely different from Omarska. It was a huge fenced-off area which included many different smaller buildings, all of them civilian, some residential. And droves of people were scattered all around the outside and inside, sitting on the grass, on the ground inside a school's classrooms or leaning against the building's white plaster walls. It was chaos, a sensory overload. Sweltering heat, open latrines, smell of sweat, shit. People trying to cook what little food they had on broilers. 
It almost felt like a self-sustaining village, guarded by armed military and police and surrounded by barbed wire, but with people trying to survive as best as they could. There was a, quote-unquote, medical centre, manned by a wonderful doctor called Idris, and he was being helped by a lady called Azra Blazovic, who was a vet by profession, and was literally trying to do the best she could with what was left of a bottle of aspirin. The doctors were prisoners at the camp themselves, and the journalists got to actually speak to Azra and Idris. When Penny asked him on camera, you know, can you tell us what's happening here, he just rolled his eyes unforgettably. And then, while they were talking, the doctors did something extremely dangerous. Idris and Azra slipped Penny Marshall a roll of film, which, when developed, showed torsos beaten black and blue that they had been trying to treat dealing with. In a moment when no Bosnian Serbs were watching, the doctors managed to hand them actual evidence of the violence at Trnopoli. With that, the sloppy veil of misdirection that the Bosnian Serbs tried to keep up throughout the day finally slipped off. Ed and the other journalists now suspected men were being brutally tortured. They knew that there were more camps than just the two or three that were known before. They heard about at least one mass murder of non-Serb prisoners taking place in one of them. They could see the men and the women were being kept in awful conditions without enough food. And it was obvious that the Bosnian Serbs desperately wanted to hide what was going on inside the other buildings at Omarska. But there was one thing that they weren't able to find out. Rape. We didn't realise how much rape was going on in Ternopoli, let alone that there was organised rape of women who were kept in special quarters for that reason in Omarska. We didn't get that, missed that, in the sort of overwhelmingness of it all, really. How did your visit to Ternopoli end? Misha, the driver from Belgrade, said, this is not going to be safe for us much longer. We're in the lion's den here and they're getting really pissed off with us. I want to go back to Belgrade. And so that was it. They had to go. They didn't see much, but they found out plenty. So we went back to Belgrade that night, seven hours through these awful places that had been burned out. And it was very odd because we tried to sort of think, you know, what do you do when you've just visited concentration camps all day and you've got a seven-hour drive through burned-out villages? And we decided that between us we would try and remember every line of every song of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in order. And we did a pretty good job. Did you manage it? We did, yes. <laughs> well done. <laughs> what, after all that, you know, you, you said in the moment, there isn't a lot of time or space for you to reflect. But I imagine in addition to remembering the lines to, you know, to the song, there was a lot of time for you to just let it all wash over you. Yeah, and there was a lot of silence as well as singing lovely Rita Meter made. And when we got to Belgrade, it was sort of middle of the night, bedtime, up early to, in ITN's case, to get to Budapest and transmit the material. In my case, write the piece. Ed says that the urgency he felt to get his Guardian article out as quickly as possible wasn't unusual. What I felt more was a sort of a sense of, you know, a burden somehow. You know, oh God, not everybody gets to walk into a place like that at the age of 39. I have something to, to do now. I have something to say. He wrote his article on the 6th of August in his hotel room in Belgrade. And on the 7th of August, it was published. In tandem with the TV reports going out on Channel 4 and ITV. Well, John, I have to say that what we saw was enough. Enough to now make it absolutely essential that the Red Cross and the United Nations are given access to these camps in northern Bosnia as soon as possible. We left with the response to the reporting was huge. Extraordinary. It's not often you get the President of the United States to react to an article you write for The Guardian. 
President George Herbert Bush said, you know, this cannot go on. I mean, where's the effect of this will be stopped? This has to be stopped. Panic in London. John Major called a conference to discuss the crisis. I now know that the UN was talking about setting up the International Criminal Tribunal on the basis of these reports later on. It's one of the few times that the same image has been on pretty much every front page in the world and Time and Newsweek by agreement of both. This image of Fikret Alic was everywhere. A man who was still a prisoner became a symbol for the world and a reminder of why something had to be done. So there was the official reaction, outrageous, this will not go on, blah, 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 which we now know to have been a sort of almost satanically hollow gesture of hot air from the so-called international effing community. And then there was the movement on the ground, whereby the camp was actually closed. The Bosnian Serbs responded. Omarska was closed pretty much immediately, and although the murders inside continued anyway, the Red Cross were given access. Prisoners were registered. Some prisoners were released straight away and deported. Many just moved to other camps with better conditions and then deported and all were forced to find their place somewhere else in the world. From what Ed says, it sounds like the next few days were intense for him. He stayed in Belgrade and gave a lot of interviews to international TV networks. He says he barely knew what was going on, where he was, it was a frenzy. And some days later, while still in Belgrade, Ed received an invitation to a meeting, arguably one which has had as much impact on Bosnia becoming ever-present in his life for decades to come as that first call from his editor to cover the war in Slovenia the year before. Nikola Kolevich, our host, Deputy President of the Republika Srpska, invites me, he's an Anglophile, and he invites me to English tea at the Hyatt Hotel. And it was an unforgettable meeting because that's where he said, and it was like talking to the devil, he sort of said, well, it took you so long, didn't it? Congratulations, young man. You'll, you know, you'll do well out of this. You found them. But, oh, you know, three months, these camps in operation. All the world's media cared about was cosmopolitan Sarajevo, uh, Olympic Games, uh, university town, blah, blah, blah. And then he said something satanic, like, there, was no, there were no Winter Olympics in Omarska. There was no university in Priador. And then he said something, and all this, so close to Venice. I thought, you're right, you're right. So close to Venice, three months. Unthinkable. Ed wrote a book about all his experiences in Bosnia in 92 and in the years since. And he wrote about this meeting with Korlevich in it. He said that afterwards he started thinking, quote, how could this shambolic shock of troops have operated these camps for three months without any outsiders knowing? It sent him down a rabbit hole. He wanted to know, did anyone on the international stage know about the camps? And when? Could this have been stopped? It would take him years to get all the answers and for the stories to come out. Hearing Ed's story makes me wonder about the same thing. How could this all happen? I mean, beyond just the question of how much the different world powers knew, even though we'll get to that too. How exactly did these men end up skeletal in the Omarska canteen? What was happening to them in that big red hangar? And what made the men behind the Ternopoli barbed wire fence so terrified of speaking? And what had the doctors witnessed that made them risk their lives to slip the camera to Penny Marshall? So in this second series of Untold Killing, across the next five episodes, I'm going to speak to the survivors of the Priador concentration camps to find out exactly what happened to them. And what I hear from them is unsettling. 
how things in their hometowns began shifting subtly at first. During one night, they simply took power. The government, which was created in secret, they had their own police, they had their own chain of command. And in the span of just a few weeks, their lives became filled with pain and fear. It started with grenades and very soon became very chaotic. Grenades were falling all over the place. People were injured. Wolves were bloody, people were bloody and scared. Centered around only one thing. There was only fear. In that fear, there was only a chance to survive or to die. Next week on Untold Killing, I talked to one of the Omarska detainees about how it all went wrong. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written and produced by Jake Atayevich. Thank you to Elmina Kulisic, Kate Williams and Amra Mukanovic from Remembering Srebrenica for helping put this series together. Editing, mixing and sound design by Rowan Bishop. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Matt Huxley and my name is Alexandra Bilic. <laughs>